Who doesn't love a good love story? I don't mean that boy meets girl, boy loses girl crap. I want that classic boy sees girl publicly attempt to murder her abuser at boy's engagement party and falls head over heels as girl is escorted out by her scar-faced husband kind of love story. You know the kind I mean. Give me a love story with the kindest, sweetest, most compassionate and caring, all-around best wife in cinema history, but the movie still wants you to cheer for her husband to cheat on her. Show me a love story that opens with the main character as a little boy at his mother's funeral, and after seeing how life goes for the other women he loves, you can't help but feel she was the luckiest of the bunch. Let me watch Omar Sharif wander across the frozen Siberian tundra with icicles in his eyebrows on a life-or-death mission for an apolitical booty call as Crosby, Stills, and Nash unironically sing Love the One You're With in the background. Okay, so I made that very last part up. But I want a love story with all of that, only you have to set it against the backdrop of the Bolshevik Revolution and bookend it with the world's least scientific paternity test administered by Soviet Mori Povich as played by Obi-Wan Kenobi. Well, if your taste in love stories is anything similar to mine, then today's film should be just what you need to scratch that very specific itch. It's an introspective epic war film love story from a director who has decades of experience doing all of those things, though not necessarily at the same time. It's the tale of a doctor who is also a poet and a philanderer, though we see very little of his doctoring and even less of his poeting, and honestly it takes like half the movie for him to start his philandering in earnest. What was this movie about again? War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So brush the Siberia out of your mustache and come hand out some communist leaflets with a marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director. As we discuss David Lean's second most famous epic war film to star Omar Sharif and Alec Guinness, Dr. Zhivago. <laughs> Call it in. It's danger close. Welcome everyone to Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan and I'm here today with my partners, Katie and Liam. And today we are here to do our first David Lean film, which I am very excited about. This is Dr. Zhivago from 1965. I've only seen Lawrence of Arabia before this one. I'm sorry, I did see The Bridge Over the River Kwai. Uh, I've only podcasted about Lawrence of Arabia, so this is only my second experience doing a bunch of research and getting into it. And it is a fascinating time in history and a fascinating part of the world. And Katie's here with our mission briefing. Based on the controversial novel of the same name, Dr. Zhivago was an international sensation when it was released on film. It was nominated for many awards, and it took home five Oscars, including Best Cinematography, Adapted Screenplay, and Score. Worldwide, it ended up earning somewhere in the area of $3 billion in today's money, which is about 350 million tickets. (laughs) And while audiences loved it, critics were not so kind. Some of the complaints were that it was a romantic reimagining of the Russian Revolution that reduced the novel's complexity down to a trite love story 
that has inconsistent pacing, abrupt scene changes, and characters that seem to flip on a dime personality-wise. Others praised it for its moving performances, gorgeous cinematography, and Lean's directorial skill at creating a film that feels very real, even if that reality is grounded in fantasy. In the years since, general audiences' love of the film has softened the criticism somewhat, especially as familiarity with the source material faded from public consciousness. This is our first film that touches on the Russian Revolution, and it's our first that talks about the perspective of Russia from its citizens rather than its leaders, like when we covered the death of Stalin. There's so much to talk about with this film in general, but because of that, I think we should take a moment to talk about our personal knowledge of that time in history and maybe give our audiences some background into what's going on in Russia at this time period before we get into talking about the film in general. So our research today is brought to us by a couple of our regular contributors, our friend Dave Feldman. Dave! Paraphrasing him, he said, I just condensed 60 years of Russian history into five pages, and it is my finest academic achievement to date. <laughs> and then a second shout out to Ali Pitts, who gave us a bunch of facts on Pasternak and the novel, and we'll get into that a little bit later. So without further ado, if you don't care about this history and you don't want the context, my personal opinion is that especially with these David Lean epics, understanding the history really helps you understand the film and absorb yourself into the characters a lot more. So I recommend it. But hey, you can skip three, four minutes ahead if you don't want to hear about the history. My undergraduate professor, Dr. Norton, described Russian history as being written by Monty Python. <laughs> Nowhere is this more representative than in the multiple revolutions that first brought democracy to Russia in 1905, the downfall of Tsarist autocracy in February 1917, and the fall of the provisional government to the Bolsheviks in October 1917. Each of these revolutions were variations on a central theme. The government of Russia failed its people. Up until 1861, the vast majority of Russian subjects were serfs, tied to the land and legally owned by the aristocracy. For centuries, alternating czars would attempt to guide Russia down two different paths, Western-style reform and Eastern-style despotism. Cities like Moscow or St. Petersburg were the rivals of London, Paris, or Vienna, while starving serfs labored in medieval conditions in the countryside, ruled over by the communal and ancient laws of the elders. Russian culture, society, government, and indeed the people themselves were being pulled apart by this dual, contradictory focus. Things seemed to come in sharp focus following Russia's humiliating defeat in the Crimean War, 1853-1856. In three decades, the armies that crushed Napoleon were thoroughly outclassed by their French and British adversaries, and the Russian Black Sea Fleet was utterly destroyed by British steamships. In 1904, imperial tensions over the far eastern Port Arthur led to war between Japan and the Russian Empire. Tsar Nicholas II, or Nikolai II, who succeeded Alexander III in 1896, actively sought this conflict because he believed that the surge in national pride associated with the all but certain, in his mind, military victory might quiet calls for political reform and revolution. This war is all but ignored in Dr. Zhivago, but it was as large a disaster as the Crimean War was 60 years earlier. The incredible suffering of the under-equipped and under-supplied Eastern Russian Army, combined with wartime shortages in all areas of the Russian economy, led a large group of civilians to march to the Winter Palace to present a petition with their grievances. Fearing violence, Russian soldiers started firing into the crowd. 
This will be the first, but certainly not the last, bloody Sunday in the 20th century. For the next year, general strikes and unrest caused the entire Russian Empire to screech to a halt. Nicholas's popularity, never strong, never recovered, and he was forced to accept an elected body, the Duma, in 1906, and published the so-called October Manifesto, which allowed voting assemblies and various freedoms, never guaranteed in Russian law prior, such as speech and the press. Elections for the first democratically elected body in Russian history were heavily manipulated by Nicholas II in order to provide as much power to his political supporters as possible. The problems that had plagued the Russian army for nearly a century followed it onto the fields of the First World War in 1914. The first major battle on the Eastern Front saw two Russian armies invade East Prussia, only for both to be almost totally destroyed in the Battle of Tannenberg. The suffering of the Russian soldiers on the Eastern Front, combined with Tsar Nicholas's incompetent wartime leadership, as well as the utter misalignment of wartime efforts at senior command levels, caused public opinion to finally and completely turn against the Romanovs and the Tsar. A coalition of socialist and liberal leaders seizing power after yet another general strike in St. Petersburg formed the Provisional Government and attempted to continue the war. The 1917 offensive quickly bogged down and soldiers began disobeying their orders and leaving the war altogether. This is brilliantly, if simplistically, shown in Dr. Zhivago. Support for the Provisional Government and Alexander Kerensky specifically collapsed. Seizing the initiative, Bolsheviks led by Vladimir Lenin staged the October 1917 coup and gained control of the Winter Palace. So this is what the Bolsheviks called the Great October Socialist Revolution, but if, in general if you hear the October Revolution, there were two revolutions in that year. The October one is the one where the Bolsheviks came to power and essentially communism started in Russia. It was in and of itself a bloodless seizure of power. The responses to the event, however, and the context surrounding it sparked a very bloody civil war from 1917 to 1921. This explains some terms that are used in the film. Between the communist reds and the anti-communist monarchical whites. In addition to them, there were factions such as village communitarians, nationalist greens, which you hear mentioned in the film, Poland, and don't forget the anarchist blacks, the central powers, chiefly Germany, the Entente, which are the allies but in World War I, the Baltic and Caucasian separatists, and the irregular partisans, who were either allied with the whites, the reds, or in between at various times. So... As you can see, this period in history and in Russian history is very complex. So that was Dave's attempt and my editing to try and have it make a little bit of sense so we can get some context on the film. Liam, you want to tell us a little bit about kind of your context on this period of time and, and Russia or if you knew anything going in? I'm like Jon Snow over here. Like, I know nothing. <laughs> I've not seen this movie before. This is kind of one of the the outstanding David Lean films of the big three. This was the only one that I hadn't seen. Like I'm very familiar with Lawrence of Arabia, very familiar with, with bridge on the river Kwai. This one had just never, I, I'd never sought this one out. And as far as the history goes, I would have to say that it's, I had a passing knowledge of the, the history of the, the Bolshevik revolution, but not anything terribly in depth. Wow, so you keep a poster of Lenin in your bedroom, but you don't actually know the history. That's interesting. Yeah, and I've got Marx tattooed on my balls. <laughs> you know, it's really just, I, I just like the beards. 
So I am incredibly familiar with World War I, which isn't that familiar, honestly. I'm not a scholar or anything about it, but I've read lots of books about it. And I know a little bit about the Russian Revolution, but the specifics I'm no way clear on. I know a lot about the Romanovs because uh, Anastasia came out when I was a kid. And therefore... The Ingrid Bergman? No. The, the <laughs> animated movie. That was amazing. And the totally bad Anastasia. Accurate. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> I've heard hey, that that's a, super underrated, actually. It's a Broadway play now. Like it's it's a it's a fun kids movie. It has not a single grain of truth to any of it. It's a great fantasy. So I know a little bit about it, but and I watched this movie for the first time when I was like eight or nine. Oh, thanks, my. mom. Like, oh yeah, my mom was very excited to show this to me. And I I sat there like growing up, one of my favorite movies, uh, my my top movies were Gone with the Wind and my Fair Lady. Those are two movies Ooh. I watched a lot. I also have seen all of Marilyn Monroe's stuff. Like, so for me, this was something that was just, oh, you know, I was like six when I watched Breakfast at Tiffany's. Had no idea what was going on in the movie, but I really liked it because Audrey Hepburn is very pretty. Yeah. My dad showed me like the seventh seal when I was eight. Oh my wow, God. Wow. That's, that's so boring to an eight-year-old though. Like, right? That's crazy. You would think so. I was riveted. Okay. See, <laughs> then it was a movie for you at eight. And it also explains an awful lot about me. It that does. does explain a lot. It does. So Dan, how familiar are you with this time in Russian history? You know, it's kind of embarrassing, but I'm also proud because it's what has pushed me to really get into history and read more about it. I would say that Dan Carlin's famous and incredibly amazing World War One series out of hardcore history called Blueprint for Armageddon. I've, I've mentioned it before here. That one is great. Is incredible. And it's six episodes. And one of them is entirely devoted to, I think it starts in 1914 on the Eastern Front, but then follows the Russians all the way back to Russia, back to the revolution. It talks about Rasputin. So it, the Romanovs, the relationship between the Tsar and the Kaiser, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's really fascinating. And, you know, it's it, when Katie was talking about it, I was like, yeah, I feel like there's a connection here to everyone who's into like the the British royal family. It's like, then you find out there's this whole Russian royal family. You're like, oh, it's like more exotic, but you still have that high class romance and drama and, you know, and political games and all of that. So I, I could see. Oh, the, uh, I mean, there's so much. R the Russian royalty is a fascinating topic. Right. I mean, I've been meaning to watch that uh, Catherine the Great show because I've heard it's actually pretty amazing and I love both of the main actors in it. Right. I actually ended up watching the movie twice despite its length and that really helped <laughs> too because I really knew a lot more about what was going on the second time I watched it. So mm -hmm. There's a lot to talk about with the movie, but before, let's take just a couple minutes here to talk about the book. Because when I said controversial in my mission briefing, I, I was downplaying it a lot, a lot. How this book was originally published, Pasternak gave the manuscript for it to the Italian communist journalist uh, Sergio D'Angelo, who claimed that Pasternak had said, you are hereby invited to watch me face the firing squad when he handed over the manuscript. And Dan, can you... Yeah. <laughs> who, who is the publisher? Uh, I'm going to come it. through with the Italian. So, D'Angelo. D'Angelo. Gorlami. D'Angelo passed it on to the publisher, Gian Giacomo Feltrinelli, which Gian Giacomo is not a super common name in Italy, like Giancarlo and Giampietro and stuff are, but Gian Giacomo is kind of rare. Anyways, he was heavily involved in the Communist Party in Italy at the time, 
and he was the person responsible for getting it published in Italian. Feltrinelli was expelled from the Italian Communist Party for this because the Russians tried hard to dissuade him from publishing it and it kind of, you know, he was ostracized from the Communist Party basically for getting it published. It was also a sensation worldwide, partially because word got out that the Russian government was like, no, we can't have this published. It must be Mm -hmm. suppressed Mm -hmm. that its initial 6000 print run sold out in one day. It was so popular and it proceeded to become just huge, like Nobel Prize winning huge. (laughs) Yeah, like they never really figured out that, you know, if you want something to die, just stop talking about it. Right, right. Yeah, I would say Nobel Prize uh, awarded, but not accepted. (laughs) So they he was Pastor was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1958 for Dr. Zhivago. And he, I'm sure, was interested in accepting it, but he got so much pressure from the Soviet authorities, he turned it down because he was just afraid of... Getting shot on the stage? Offending them. But yeah, I think more seriously to, you know, get disappeared. The book did not see the light of day until Gorbachev's policy of glasnost, openness. So in 1988, the book was finally released in Russia. And this film was not seen in Russia until 1994. Yeah, it was, it was under, I mean, I understand why, because of my little bit of knowledge about Russian history, they're big into suppression. And I think, I think the film kind of addresses that aspect of Russian society once the revolution and maybe before then takes over in the level of censorship that's taken on by the provisional government and eventually the full government. Pasternak is way more famous in Russia as a poet and a translator than as a novelist. This was his most famous book. His translations of Shakespeare apparently were and are highly acclaimed in Russia. He's the famous translator of Hamlet into Russian. Yeah. And, you know, he's culturally very celebrated in Russia to this day. They have an annual festival uh, at his gravesite where poets go and recite their poetry or even read his poetry to each other. And and poetry, you know, Jackie's been reading um, Anna Karenina. And so she knows a lot about Russian literature from that and from other things she's read. And I think poetry is very important to Russians and literature is in general as well. So it, it was a big deal. And I'm sure it was a big deal when it finally got released. Uh, Ali asked me to give a shout out to the podcast Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated. It sounds like if you're interested in uh, getting into Russian literature, you can go check out that podcast. Segwaying into Dr. Zhivago, the more I learned about Pasternak and the history of the publishing of his book in Russia versus in the rest of the world, the more I couldn't help but see the parallels with the actual character of Zhivago. So it's like, it feels semi autobiographical i know this love story was also a love story for pasternak and then of course he just kind of sets it into the historical events it's a fictional character but i see a lot of parallels there what what did you guys think of the actual character of zhivago i think zhivago is a little bitch (laughs) wow okay right off the bat i was half expecting that i'm not in love with zhivago in this so (sighs) just let it out liam you'll feel better once you do (laughs) I know. I'm just, it's not Omar Sharif's fault. No, nothing is Omar Sharif's fault. Nothing, which is sometimes a controversial statement, but nothing is Omar Sharif's (laughs) fault. I thought his performance was good. 
especially when the only other thing that I've really seen Omar Sharif in, like I've seen him in bit parts here and there, but the only other big role that I have to compare it to is Sheriff Ali in Lawrence of Arabia. And this is a wildly different character. Even his eyes are different. Like in this, he looks like he's about to cry all of the time. He's just got like these big, giant, wet eyes, which is a real departure from like the cold, steel-eyed Sheriff Ali that you get in Lawrence of Arabia. So I appreciated his performance, but there's something, and this is probably more of a ding on Pasternak than on Omar Sharif. There's something that writers like to do when they write about writers. And especially when they're injecting themselves. I'm not at all surprised. This is such an author insert character. Oh, my God. Has all the bells and whistles of one. Like the writer is has become like his own Mary Sue. Mm -hmm. And he just like puts it right in there. And, you know, and you see a little bit of it in in Hamilton, which we watched recently. But it's like, oh, he's such a good writer that the ladies can't resist him. (laughs) Like fucking what? (laughs) For real? Oh, well, if he can't write like. Like my poet does, just like, oh, shut up. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Poets were considered like celebrities of the time period. That is not out of the ordinary. But it's not like it, it's not like they're a sad boy with a guitar in a corner at the party singing to the girl across the room. Like it's so dumb. like nobody falls in love with somebody purely because of their writing. And if they do, that is a bad person that you do not want to requite that love for you've not read enough french novels my friend so i'm gonna come in and interject on liam for a second only because there may be some background information that he's not aware of that might expound on these points so oh please do tell first of all this love triangle situation was real meaning that it did happen to pasternak and lara was a real person not in the same exact circumstances But there was an affair, and she certainly did seem to be very in love with him, uh, especially as an artist and as a poet. And she paid very dearly for their affair because she spent, I don't want to throw out a number because I don't remember, but a a serious amount of time in a gulag for it, like seven plus years or something like that. And she's interviewed in it. So if you want to get a little bit of background on the making of this, there's a great one hour making of narrated and presented by Omar Sharif. Uh, it's an hour long on Dr. Zhivago, the film. And it it's where most of the trivia on IMDb actually comes from, which is good because I needed some clarification on that stuff. But it's fascinating watch. And you can see interviews with the original Lara. In terms of Sharif's acting, this is more hand of the director stuff, I think, than even the way the character was written. And I can't speak to how he was written in the book because I haven't read it. But David Lean was trying to figure out how to make him come off as a poet in the visual medium of the film. And he was like, we can't have him sit down and write poetry. That's super boring. It doesn't translate well on camera. And then he does it anyway. Doesn't stop him from doing it. <laughs> uh, he doesn't write a whole poem, though. He just, you know. He- you see him scribble. You see him scribbling. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but it's a very short scene. It's not like, the you know, he's writing and they're doing a voiceover of the poetry. Like, they right. really could have gone off the deep end with that. So, basically, David Lean told Omar Sharif not to emote at all. All. Omar Sharif tells the story and he's like, he wanted me to do nothing. And the idea was that the poet 
was taking everything in. That's why there's so many scenes of him open up the freezing ass door on the train just to like look at the moon. And I'm like, it's got to be negative a thousand out there. Like, what the hell is he doing? You know, so he's, he's got all these moments of just staring at stuff, you know, the way like, quote unquote, an artist or a poet would do. And that Lean wanted Cherie to feel like an observer and that you would get all the emotion from the other characters around him. This was really difficult for Omar Sharif and he almost had a breakdown over it. You know, he called David Lean and was like, I can't do it. And it's because his eyes froze in his skull because he yeah. was crying so All the much time. in like sub 30 weather. <laughs> it's like, I can't do it. And I'm terrible and I'm doing a terrible job. And Lean was like, you're doing fine. Just keep going. And, you know, in the end, I think it, it kind of speaks for itself. But if anyone is to be get the blame or the credit for that, I think it's David Lean. That was David Lean is famously a perfectionist. And so he definitely got involved in telling his actors exactly how he wanted a part played or a scene played out or whatever. In terms of his looks, there's some weird anecdotes in the trivia, but Sharif admits it himself that, you know, his hair is kind of wavy and, and Middle Eastern looking. Mm hmm. And they tried straightening it and it still didn't have the right looks. So they ended up, he has a very low hairline. And so they ended up shaving his hairline two or three inches up. And then he still ended up wearing a wig on top of that because he needed the straight hair with kind of the swooping little comb over in the front. Mm -hmm. And so he's wearing a wig. He had to, they had to wax his face probably to get rid of like his cheek beard, you know, like the, the facial hair that, you know, hairier men get like right below their eyes. So they waxed all that off every couple of days. And then they, and I didn't understand this until Omar Sharif described it in detail, but they taped his eyes back. So I guess from the sides. To get rid of his epicanthic fold. I guess. Yeah, it's, it, I, I didn't understand it a hundred percent. All I know is that it was, they were trying to make him look more Slavic and it was super uncomfortable and hurt after a while. And he even got like scars basically on the side of his Ugh. head from it, from having these rubber bands holding his eyes back like most of the time they were filming. So that's some of what's going on in the background of Ormar Sharif playing Zhivago. So first of all, I take a little bit of exception to describing it as a love triangle. It's more just like a love vector where he starts in one point and then just immediately runs off in a single direction into infinity. Because he starts off with the wife that he's supposed to be with. Tanya. Yeah, Tanya. And then he, I don't know, sees a pretty girl from the train and then later sees her shoot a dude. I, I, I don't I don't get the draw of Lara. I really don't. Really? This is more of a love pentagon or parallelogram because... You have Zhivago and his wife. Who he does not give a fuck about at all in this movie. You have Pasha and his wife, Lara. Then you have Victor the Violator. And then you even have General Zhivago, uh, Yevgrav Zhivago, who is Dr. Zhivago's half-brother, who talks about you know being half in love with her, etc. He doesn't really count in the... There's no sex going on there. There's no actual love. But yeah, I guess triangle is just the wrong word for a lot of reasons. One of them being that this is way more than three sides, but... Yeah, it, it gets kind of murky. Yeah, the main groups that play out is that it's between Tanya, Zhivago, and Lara, and Pasha. And Pasha becomes Strelnikov, and he's essentially out of the film except for one shot but he's kind of this overriding presence right and i feel like that's the thing that we're supposed to get 
Yeah, but the giant elephant rapist in the room is also a huge part of this. And, and yes, like, he is, is in a huge part of the film. Yeah, he has such a small amount of screen time, but such a huge effect. But it's Rod fucking Steiger. It's Rod fucking Steiger. <laughs> and that man owns any movie that he happens to stumble into frame on. Oh, man. Every single one. His, his screen presence is fucking top notch. Typically, as an actor, I am usually on Team Rod Steiger. Mm-hmm. Well. <laughs> you might not be after this. So, I, <laughs> I was kind of, yeah, I was looking into his part and... I call him uh, Victor the Violator just to like keep track of the characters. He's, he's real rapey. Mm, he's mm-hmm. the the rapist throughout the film, and he is taking advantage of Lara through most of the film, or at least half of the film. Wait, so I have a quick question before we before we go on. Just in the over the course of the movie, as soon as they're alone together, I got the distinct impression that he raped her in that carriage or in that sleigh or whatever they were in. In the beginning or the end? The beginning. Oh, yeah. He he assaults her. Yes. But then, like, later, there's the the rape scene. Right. Where he makes the When comment. he's like, and don't you dare call it rape. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, this was the one? This was the one you didn't want to say was rape? Because, like, all of them looked pretty rapey. Yeah, there's a certain level of escalation in his behavior, I think. It's like a rape spectrum. Or, or, or like a consent spectrum. Well, and, and- Lara's supposed to be 17 in this. So this is very much mm-hmm. an older man grooming a younger woman. And this is exactly how these kinds of things happen is it starts with the, the eye contact and like the slightly intimidating views. And then he starts flattering her. And then he starts getting into what they used to call heavy petting. And then right the rape scene happens after he gets pissed off at her. Because, well, I mean, like, and, and I don't know if it goes into more graphic detail in the book. I would kind of assume so. This being made in 65, I was honestly kind of impressed that they went like. That they used the R all word? All the way there. They used the R word, yeah. which is not common in that time period. That first scene when it's like she gets out of the, the, the sleigh and she's like all disheveled and crying. And I'm like, holy shit, like in a sleigh? It was open and it was cold out, dude. To be honest, as much as I hate to say this, like I don't think for the characters in the story, it really matters whether they had sex in that moment or not. I think that is just the moment where the overt power dynamic is finally like set in stone. Right. He's like, I'm going to kiss you. You're resisting. I'm going to force myself on you. And this is how it is. And you're not saying shit to anybody. And then right. that dynamic kind of continues. Just because they don't have PIV sex. Yeah, it was it was more than more than just a a forcing of a kiss is bad enough. Mm-hmm. But her appearance when they when we next see her after that indicated to me that more had happened. Yeah. What's interesting is how Rod Steiger approached the role, because there's a couple of scenes where he does something that was not in the script and was kind of unexpected as part of, I don't know, I guess, method acting. And the carriage scene, he's supposed to kiss her. But when she pulled away and... This is in the 1995 making of like interview. So these are, I'm paraphrasing his words. He was basically like to get the right reaction. I grabbed her and forced myself on her and shoved my tongue down her throat. And so the reaction that you see from her is legitimate because she wasn't expecting that it wasn't in the script. That's one time where Rod Steiger kind of took the method acting into his own hands. And then the line we're talking about after he calls her a slut and which in that scene, she slaps him. 
and he slaps her back and Rod Steiger's on the record saying, and that wasn't in the script. So she wasn't expecting to be slapped back. So again, that was sort of, he did that for her reaction. And Rod Steiger says, but I was a gentleman. I slapped her with my glove, not with my hand. And of course, the famous line as he's leaving the room in that scene by the character Victor is, And don't delude yourself. This was rape. That would flatter us both. There's lots of bad, rapey power dynamic situation. I mean, the fact that she's 17 is worse now than it was then in the sense that, you know, consent and marriage and all that kind of stuff. No, absolutely. That That isn't exactly... That didn't necessarily make it taboo back then. Well, it's women at, at 17 were women. Right. It was unusual to have a family at 17. You know, you started having kids at 14, 15. His character is ostensibly in like his late 40s. So obviously there's a huge difference there. What I found a little bit disturbing is actually Rod Steiger's comments about the whole relationship. He's talking about the character of Victor. He didn't do anything wrong. He wanted to sleep both with, with both women. I don't know a man in the world who wouldn't want to sleep with two women at once. He didn't do anything wrong. In fact, he was a romantic and kind of heroic at the end. That's Rod Steiger on the character. I don't know much else about Rod Steiger. Liam seems to know him more as an actor, but, uh, and this is in 95, not in the 60s. So, yeah. right. He's dead now, but I don't. <laughs> Yeah, it made me feel, as to quote Liam, it made me feel real icky inside just reading all of that and thinking about it. So, of the things, I'll go ahead and, and go down the list. Of the things that you just informed me of, uh-huh. none of which I knew prior, his quote there is probably the least disturbing to me. Okay. <laughs> For the reason that when you study acting and when you're trained in, you know, stage, screen, what have you. One of the first things, and this is where like sort of a slippery slope comes into it, is that one of the first things that you have to learn to do is to empathize with the character that you play. Mm-hmm. You know, the the classic example is like, you can't play Hitler as the bad guy. And that's kind of right. like a, a cliche thing to to do. But like the most evil person in the world, if you want to give a truthful, honest, convincing performance, you're not going to play it like you hate the character. You have to find some way in and you have to be able to empathize with them and rationalize the things that they rationalize. I would assume I did not see the interview and I don't know if this was in any way, shape or form taken out of a larger context as far as like what he specifically was referring to, but no. Oh yeah. He totally rapes her and is a bad dude. (laughs) But it is a really interesting character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's true. That the movie, I don't think, always knows what to do with. Like, narratively, I, I feel like when he comes back at the end, he's still bad, but you want Laura to go with him. Yeah, you want her to get out. Yeah, you want her to get out, but it's like, it's it's very, like, the movie doesn't have a clear-cut answer on Victor. No, I I agree, and or on or on Zhivago, I think I think there right. by the end the movie really starts to question his choices, you know. Yeah, and the now as far as the other stuff goes, I think the thing that I find the the most problematic, and, and this is an issue that I have with 
method in general. Rod Steiger, not the only person who's guilty of this. Doing things that you didn't rehearse that involve a physical interaction with your scene partner. Mm -hmm. I view that as a big no-no. I've actually not cast somebody because in auditions, in the moment, they like shoved a person or like got physical with somebody. Right. There's a consent issue going on at that point. There is. Right. And the actress isn't 17. She's 25, but he's still like 50 and kind of forcing himself on a 25 year old actress. You know what I mean? Like there's still something there. I mean, famously in Kramer versus Kramer before they went through a door to go into a scene where Meryl Streep was supposed to be crying right before the director yelled action. Dustin Hoffman turned around and slapped her straight in the face. Jeez. Yeah. The, and this is something that has been a problem and will continue to be a problem in the acting profession. People using method to justify toxic, shitty ass behavior. Yeah. It's one thing to ask your co-star to slap you because you want to get a certain reaction out of yourself. It's another thing to slap your co-star unannounced. Yeah. Totally different. I myself prefer to be slapped on stage because I really suck at making the, the nap sound and making like a, a stage slap look real. I'm, I'm supremely bad at it. So given my druthers, I would rather you just haul off and whack me, but that's my call. Right. You're the only one who gets to say that. Exactly. Well, the other person can also say, no, I'm not going to hit you. And then I'll be like, okay, fine. We'll just have to really work this or stage it differently. However, I do love Rod Steiger's performances, not excusing any shitty behavior that he engaged in in this movie from the other movies that I've seen him in. I can't really see instances in those movies where something like this would have been applicable or where that would have come up. But like he was great in on the waterfront. He was great. in even like shitty movies like the January man, like he comes in and is just like <laughs> owns the scene. Uh, I love the January man, but yeah, like he's like his performances are always reliable. I just wish he, he weren't a fucking dickhead about it. Am I wrong? <laughs> no, you're not wrong. Am I wrong? You're not wrong, Walter. You're just an asshole. For Julie Christie, she'd been, she'd acted in a few other things. And the reason she got cast in this instead of Sophia Loren, who one of the producers wanted, this was her big role other than Billy Liar. And she gives a very interesting performance. I think, you know, she's obviously much older than the person she's supposed to be playing. And that really affects things for me. Hmm. And here's where hearing about how the stage direction or film direction or whatever was given to Omar Sharif, I, I can imagine there was probably similar direction given to Julie Chrissy of being very virginal and innocent because the reason that um, David Lean would not cast Sophia Loren, he told the guy, he's like, oh, she's too tall. She's too tall. But in reality, it was because he could not see her as a virgin. Right. Too much <laughs> sex appeal. Yeah. Which is real special way to think about women, but whatever. I understand Sophia Loren is not exactly... Um, right, she's like a bombshell, like, it's and, and older. <laughs> she's a knockout, like... And that's what she was known for. Her career has been bombshell-like. Right, right. right. And, and so it's typecasting is what we're talking about here. It Typecasting, but also just like the public's awareness of a person. Sophia Loren had been... That would be like trying to cast Carmen Electra or 
Do not somebody... compare Sophia Loren to Carmen Electra. Oh, I'm talking about what people know them as. Put Megan Fox as the Virgin Mary and see how far you get. I can see why, especially in this time period, the casting was we're still relatively recently getting out of the studio system when the casting was very much made on, okay, who looks right for this role Mm -hmm. as opposed to who can act it the best. So I I can see why they didn't choose Sophia Loren, but I would just be fucking fascinated to see her give a performance like this because I feel like she's definitely got a lot more range than anybody gave her credit for. Julie Christie walks this tightrope really well of being a strong individual who is going to bear up under all hardship and just keep fucking going and make things work. And also seeming like a very delicate creature because in her interactions with Zhivago and Pasha and she does seem like this kind of shrinking violet almost. But when you look at where she's at in the film, she raises her daughter. She survives in She shoots Rod Steiger in public. Right. She's and doesn't get murdered for that. She survives Uriat, you know, being bombed and has a nice little apartment with her daughter that she sends to school. At the end of the movie, we see that she's living in Moscow and working. And well, Yevgrev describes her as probably just dying in a labor camp somewhere. I'm like, I feel like that's not an accurate depiction of what would happen to that woman because she just keeps going. And so there is a little bit of a duality to her character that is partially due to the script, but I also think is partially due to Julie Christie's performance of like being able to play that shrinking violet with a backbone of steel. I could see that. Because if you if you look at Zhivago's wife, Tanya, she's obviously been raised as an aristocrat and she is very delicate and just kind of keeps surviving by being very polite. And we only really get to see her with Zhivago. It's not like with Lara where we do get to see scenes of her existing outside of Zhivago. We really Mm -hmm. only get to see her do that. And this was the first really huge role for Geraldine Chaplin. Yes, that Chaplin family. She was Charlie Chaplin's daughter by his fourth wife, I think it was. I was going to say like 15th wife. Yeah. Yeah, she was one of his like eight kids. Oddly enough, she was the same age as her mother. Like, I don't know. Charlie Chaplin was fucked up. Yes, yes. And she ends up playing, Geraldine Chaplin played Charlie Chaplin's mother for the Robert Downey Jr. uh, biopic that they made. Yeah, she played her own grandmother, which I'm sure was very cool. Who is also an actress at the time. And Geraldine Chaplin mentions that she based this performance on her mother. Yeah, because she's. She's the picture perfect example of what a the perfect aristocratic daughter is supposed to be. You know, she's always so put together and so self-sacrificing and she, but she's also so different from Julie Christie's character. Personally, I think one of the big missing scenes, here's the rare rare instance of Katie makes it better with Dr. Zhivago. I would have loved to see the conversation and the scene between those two actresses and those two characters, because it would have been so interesting. But we just get none of that. It's just kind of tossed away, sadly. So there's a lot of scope for the actresses in this film. And I think they do their very best with it. But it was not a time when there was a lot of encouragement for that kind of range. And especially with a director like David Lean, who is very like, this is exactly what I want out of this character. 
and your job is to provide that, not give me what you think is the best performance. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's not like other directors who are like, well, what what's your interpretation of the character? Like when we we talked about John Carpenter's The Thing recently, where the actors very much influenced their their characterization. And David Lean specifically kept himself distant from his actors. Like he didn't stay in the same hotel as them. Like he slept in different quarters. He didn't want to be friends and interact with them outside of the job until the film was wrapped and they were done. And then he was very friendly and happy to do social stuff. Specifically, what he said was he didn't want his knowledge of the actor's own personalities to influence his vision of what the characters were supposed to be. He wanted to keep that pristine. So yeah, I'm sure talking to him, interacting with him uh, on set was an interesting discussion. I'm team Tonya personally. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm team Tonya. Because you respect the sanctity of marriage? No, I think marriage is kind of dumb, actually. <laughs> no, the, Tonya kicks ass. Like, she is amazing. I like her as a character. Don't get me wrong. Watching her, I mean, she is, she adapts so beautifully. For somebody who's supposed to be an aristocrat, she is the one who's like, oh, no, this is how we do things now. Like when he comes back and the Bolsheviks have taken over. Right. And he doesn't understand any of this. And her father doesn't understand any of this. And she's right. like, guys, I got this. I will navigate us through this new cultural landscape because you're both stupid and you don't understand anything. Yeah. I see what's going on. I'm going to get us through this. She's the survivor. She is. She's a total fucking survivor. She's a bad like she's. She's a badass. She's not grabbing a gun and shooting a dude in public. There are different ways to be a badass. She does not get the credit she deserves in the movie or from Zhivago. Yeah, he kind of puts her on a pedestal a lot of the time. It puts her in the closet. He's just like, okay, I'll bring you out when I need to have a kid. That's a bit unfair, but okay. No, that's what he... Very little patience for Zhivago. I personally thought it was actually a good display of someone who just whose heart was split between two people. But what did you guys think of the technical filmmaking, the cinematography, the lighting, the actual set design, the production design, all that? I I have some background info for you guys, but I want to kind of hear what, like, how did the film look to you guys? One of the Oscars it won was for art direction and costume design, which are all impeccable. Not necessarily the most accurate, to the events being portrayed, but gorgeous. Technically, this film is a marvel, which I would expect from David Lean. And it's kind of an opposite of Lawrence of Arabia. And, you know, obviously we're dealing with snow versus the desert. Mm-hmm. And we're dealing with a love story versus more high adventure. And it's beautiful to watch. And it had... um the kind of lenses they were using were relatively new, so they were able to get a lot of deep focus shots that wouldn't have been possible too much earlier in the film industry. And it was filmed in color, glorious, glorious panorama color. And it's a very great usage of classical camera techniques. It's nothing, you know, nothing super exciting happening here, but it's all masterfully done. And that makes it a joy to watch when it comes to taking it in visually. The score is gorgeous. Like It all works very well of a piece. Liam, what'd you think? My biggest kind of uh, uh, surprise to me is that this 
was made after Lawrence of Arabia and after Bridge on the River Kwai. Because this feels, I guess I'd have to think of it more like more of a career sort of capstone than a transition piece, but it feels like a transition from early David Lean to epic David Lean. Because prior to like Lawrence of Arabia and Bridge on the River Kwai, most of his stuff was like no coward adaptations, like a lot of drawing mm-hmm. room kind of shit and like a brief encounter. Like this is like if brief encounter and Lawrence of Arabia had a cold Russian baby. <laughs> Cause like the first half in particular, it's a lot of drawing room shit. Yes. And I'm sitting here noticing that like, man, probably like 90% of the first half was all done on a soundstage, or at least looks like it was done on a soundstage with like distinct sets. Most, most of it was done in Spain. They built a lot of those sets in Spain. Yeah. Even like the outdoor shots, you're like, oh, that's not a street in Eastern Europe. That's probably built to look like that. And it takes us a long time to get out to the sweeping outdoor shots that you, that you would expect to see in a David Lean film. So that was a a very interesting sort of like marriage of the two styles that he had made a career on. And I honestly wanted, I, I was hoping for more of the sweeping stuff coming into this because that's the David Lean that I really like. I can see that. And I get what you mean. I think that while this is visually a pretty amazing film, it does not hit the highs that Lawrence of Arabia does at the same time. Man, I don't know. Maybe I'm biased towards the desert, but like the sand dunes of Jordan are just an impressive thing, you know, upon themselves where you could take a picture of it with an iPhone and it still like has a certain level of impressiveness to it where I think this was more a lot of technical things coming together. And even the decision to go to Spain was more out of necessity. Like, you know, they tried to see was there because Russia wouldn't let them in. Russia wasn't going to let them anywhere near (laughs) the country with this film. They looked at other things and and a big part of the problem was, okay, where are we going to get snow out in these open plains with access to a railway system and studios somewhere nearby where we can store stuff and get stuff. used all the cocaine and asbestos that Hollywood could muster. Exactly. And Spain was the only realistic place where they were going to be able to get all those things. And I think uh, production designer John Box had a lot to do with that decision. He was like, I know just the spot and we can get the mountains, we can get the plains, etc. And it did work. Unfortunately, they were struck by one of the warmest winters that Spain had seen in decades. And so the time they got in snow was very minimal. They had to use a lot of artificial snow and they did end up filming in Canada for a lot of their like real snow scenes because they were like, all right, God damn it. Mm-hmm. We have to put some real actual snow in here. We can't just fake all of it. And so they intermixed some shots from um, filming in Canada, which is great. But I, I want to go back to the Moscow set for a second because I don't want to undersell that. I mean, I get it that it's a set built on a soundstage in the 60s. And so in some oh, ways, beautiful set, though, it's gorgeous. It's a 10 acre replica of Moscow built in a suburb of Madrid It included a cobbled 800-yard street with two working trolley car lines, a train viaduct, a replica of the Kremlin, and St. Basil's. That was the thing that tripped me out the most. I thought for sure 
that the Basilica and the Kremlin in the background were a matte painting because they're never there. Like they're just in the background. They're not lit directly. I'm like, mm-hmm. why would you? But they actually built those things, which is kind of crazy to oh me. God. And a circling giant plaza, 60 shops. Most of the interiors in that first half of the film are filmed on that set because all the shops and all the houses had working interiors. So they just like went into whatever house they were filming in and that house was furnished and had all the space for the camera, etc. which is unusual. In the weird red restaurant, did they like lovingly sculpt all of those statues breasts? <laughs> you walk in and it's just like golden naked women everywhere. And I'm like, well, this also feels creepy. Thanks, Victor. Publicists touted this as the largest set ever built for a movie. It took 800 workers 18 months to build. And David Lean was really strict, not only with what lenses he was using when he filmed all the way down the street, but he specifically just used these wide angle lenses so that the street would seem longer. And there was a little bit of a forced perspective effect where the street converged tighter than it would have for a normal street Mm -hmm. to make it look like it extended in the distance further. And he restricted anybody coming on with cameras. They could take pictures of the set, but it had to be from the front end of the set looking down and it had to be with wide angle lenses only. So he didn't want any publicity getting out on what the set was actually like he just wanted those shots to get out so they put a lot of work and a lot of thought into that particular set and i mean it works pretty damn well i thought for most oh of yeah for sure one thing that really jumped out to me I, I i don't know what it was but it was a motif that sort of weaves its way through the film but it really grabbed me and that was the scene where lara and pasha are in the room together and the one lone candle by the window melts all of the frost on the window slowly. So mm-hmm. you can like, it starts off frosted, but mm-hmm. then like as the scene goes, it starts to melt away and melt away. And then you can see them talking in the room. It was like this weird reverse vignetting that like, I, I thought was absolutely fabulous. And that frost melting on glass became this this like i said a motif that it gets repeated a couple of times mm-hmm. uh and yeah. i'd be really interested to see i can you know come up with reasons what that was trying to communicate myself but i'd be really interested to see what the thought process was behind that motif and how they came up with it yeah there's quite a few moments like that uh where there's the scene where he's waking up in the hospital bed and kind of in and out of it, where they do a lot of frosting around his face to signify sort of passage of time and that he's kind of out of it and kind of in dreamland. And there's a scene where he goes upstairs in the ice palace after Lara has left with Victor and he smashes the window so that he can get a glimpse of her disappearing. There's a scene mm-hmm. on the train where they open the train car door. I'd love to know how they did this exactly. And there's just a sheet of ice Blocking the door, yes. and then someone takes a shovel and smashes the ice. Probably spun sugar, honestly. It looks great. Yeah, it does. looks fantastic. And there's the scene that represents the passage of time of they're looking out the window in the little cottage out in the country. And you see the snow spangles on the window slowly melt away. Mm-hmm. And then you see through the window, you see that the flowers have come back. It's also masterfully done. And I'm sure each shot was very carefully planned because that's kind of... David Lean for you, I think. 
And man, that art department is busy. I mean, they were going from winter to spring from one day to the next. I think they Mm -hmm. were using winter trees without leaves. And so when it went from spring to fall, animation artists actually drew all those green leaves onto the trees and then turned them all red for the fall scenes. So that was all done painstakingly by hand, which is crazy. So I think the thing that we haven't really discussed quite yet about this film is the philosophy behind it. Because my understanding of Russian literature and poetry, like Dan said earlier, is very, very important to the Russian people. And that is because of how it communicates different philosophies across across their populace. You know, they don't necessarily have, at least at this time, can't speak for now, they don't necessarily have all their peasants being educated in, you know, Western or Eastern philosophy, but poetry? Lots of people can listen to poetry. Lots of people can read books, as long as they've been taught to read. And Lean seems to very carefully sprinkle through these philosophical moments and they become it starts out really light but as the film goes on and on we see it becoming more and more pressing as russia goes from being you know the horrifically exploitative monarchy of the czar to the harsh and demanding soviet system that they had at the near the end of the film i wonder how much of that is lean's inspiration from the book but since I don't know, I have to assign it all to him. And like the line in particular that made me go, huh, is when Pasha, who's taken on his new name and has now become this brutal murderer who is just enacting death upon everybody for seemingly the slightest of reasons. I used to admire your poetry. Thank you. I shouldn't admire it now. I should find it absurdly personal. Don't you agree? Feelings, insights, affections, it's suddenly trivial now. You don't agree, you're wrong. The personal life is dead in Russia. History has killed it. I think that's where the film really gets into blatantly stating its thoughts on these these topics and then kind of backs off from that a little bit and then we see that brought up again when Zhivago is conscripted into the partisans um, and they shoot an entire field full of schoolboys. Oh, the whites, right. The thing I got from that is that those were school children and they were drilling, not necessarily that they had anything to do with the whites because of the reaction of the other men. It's like, well, it doesn't matter. In the grand scheme of things, none of this matters. The what I understood it to be was that they were part of a military school mm-hmm. that yes. I didn't get the feeling necessarily that they were drilling. I thought that the implication there was that the whites were having run out of men were starting to enlist boys from yeah. the military school. I oh, think okay. so. I mean, they may have been scouting or something, but yeah, because that's when the that's when they the one guy curses out the old guy who was obviously in charge. Mm hmm who is now laying dead in the field with these boys that he's just like, Oh, you, uh, you, you old bastard or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Something along those lines. And I think that's just fucking fascinating that it's just kind of slipped in there amidst this grand love story. Yeah. That's the, um, so I, I do have trouble with 
things that have this one-sided a perspective that I don't know a lot about the history. You know what I mean? Where it's like, it's interesting to me that Pasha, the sniveling weak eyed nerd suddenly has like an overdeveloped sense of his own manhood. That seems to me like an odd thing to say. The personal life is dead for anybody who still, what was it? Values their manhood. And I'm like, dude, you were like a 98 pound weakling before you turned into Scarface. Like what is wrong with you? And it, it felt a little cartoonish. I think it's supposed to speak to the state's dehumanization of people when it takes these kinds of actions. I think that's what it's, that's the message that character is supposed to be sending is that when you strip the idea of a personal life and personal responsibilities and all things are just for the state becomes far too easy, as we see even today right now, becomes far too easy to justify horrific actions. Because it's all for the good of the state and people's personal lives don't really matter. It's all about what can we do to further our country. Yeah. And there's a, the progression of that is shown. If you think about it, you first see Pasha in these, you know, peaceful protests where they then get annihilated by the Cossacks or by the police and many people are killed. He's severely injured. And so after that, he's like, we're not doing any more peaceful protests. You know, we have to go to arms, whatever. Then the war comes and he's leading men in the infantry in combat. And I thought that while maybe it was a little bit heavy handed and definitely David Lean. Right. The scene, because I thought he dies in that scene. And of course he doesn't. But I think that that scene where he gets hit or the artillery round lands near him and he gets blown back and then his glasses fly off his face mm-hmm. and land in front of the camera that's on the ground. To me, that scene was yet another transition for Pasha. That's kind of where he became Strelnikov after that. That's where any resemblance or any memory of his personal life, his wife and all that kind of went away. And he was like, fuck this war, which is what, those soldiers are doing like Dave's research says, you know, maybe a little oversimplified in the film, but they're kind of like, you know, uh, Alec Guinness is narrating and he says, and then they did what any soldier would dream of doing. They got up and they went home. And after that is when we see this, like almost James Bond villain kind of character of Stronikov. So I, I do think that they break up that transition showing you that he started as a nonviolent person, but, the repression from the czarist regime, as well as the adoption of this fervent Bolshevism at, at the beginning or during the Civil War, turned him into, you know, a violent person who did what he needed to do, essentially. So I don't know. I, I do think that transition is, is and shown then in the film. There's also uh, Yevgrev, who hit Zhivago's half brother, who we don't get a lot of his development, but there's enough. There's enough of it to see another side of what this kind of conflict in this time period did to people where for him, he was a party man through and through and through and then eventually becomes um, part of the secret police. The first iteration, actually, of Russia's uh, secret police, which I believe they Mm -hmm. still go in strong today in some form or another. And you see the middle ground. Whereas Pasha completely loses his own humanity in subsuming himself for the state, 
Yevgrev kind of walks the, the line. He sometimes doesn't do what the party wants when he helps Zhivago get out. And when he is interrogating this woman to find out whether or not she's Zhivago and Lara's daughter. and But he's also obviously someone who's very invested in protecting the party because by the end of the film, you know, he goes from being like a low-level um, instigator uh, to get the rebellion really going to like a high-level general with a lot of power because he played the game. But he also does not lose his humanity by recognizing that the party, you know, he aligns himself with some of the party's ideals, but not all of them. And he's obviously very conflicted about that. He's also Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah, and it's Alec Guinness. Alec Guinness is fucking fantastic in it. Yeah, like try to get Alec Guinness to not be subtle. He can't do it. He's a masterpiece. And they made an interesting choice narratively that I wanted to ask you guys about being more familiar with theater and cinema, but also books is the narration style where he is in a scene and has dialogue in the scene, but he's sort of reflecting back on his internal state of being during that time and is narrating that the way the narrator would in a book. And I don't know if those lines of narration are pulled directly from the book, but I can't remember the last time it's, I'm sure it's not the first time it's been done or the last time, but I can't remember another film that did that particular style. And I was like, Oh, this is really interesting. They are making it feel like a book because if this was shot straight, especially with all this secret police talk and the state, et cetera, et cetera. Like sometimes it's hard. Like you don't get a sense of what Strelnikov is actually thinking in any of his scenes. You're just getting what he says. But with Yevgrav Zhivago, you are getting all his internal thoughts during the scenes. So it really paints a picture of who he is as a character and what his motivations are when he's lying and when he's being truthful. That doesn't happen for any other character. What what did you guys, have you guys seen that before? What did you think about that? So I'll tell you the thing that, and this will probably tickle Jackie to no end, but the the other place where I can like just off the top of my head think that I've seen that done before was actually in the 1995 Pride and Prejudice miniseries. Oh boy! <laughs> but in in those instances, because Pride and Prejudice is a book where there are a lot of letters written, mm. yeah, and like a lot of things are described in letters. That's how they adapt that is they show what the letter's talking about while the person then narrates over that footage with the actual text of the letter. Mm. And because of that distinct use of it, like it happens a lot, but because it's such a, a particular use case, I feel like it works better there than it does here because ostensibly he's narrating all of it. Right. To He's telling her, this whole story. Right. The film is kind of a flashback, right? Yeah. yeah. Not just the stuff that he's in. So I don't know that that necessarily worked for me as much in this setting because it felt very odd and a little off-putting to me. It's right. jarring when it happens because it's not like it happens in every scene just happens in some of them i feel like uh if this film was more modern it was closer to the meme era that we're in now this would have totally become a meme and i thought of you guys as 
you know, artists, writers, creators, when he's talking to him and he goes, General Yevgraf Zhivago narrating, he was walking about with a noose around his neck and didn't know. So I told him what I'd heard about his poems. And then Zhivago's comment with like this look of despair on his face as the poet goes, not liked? Not liked by whom? Why not liked? And I was like, oh man, I feel you so hard right now. It's like anytime you create something and you're just like, what do you, what do you mean they didn't like it? Why didn't yeah. they like it? What, yeah. what you mean no likey? You could see he's being crushed by this realization right. that it's the party that doesn't like his work. And it's such a parallel to Pasternak because, of course, right. you know, he, and he was he loved Russia and he loved the Soviet Union and he wasn't even an anti-communist, really. So I could tell from reading about the history that he was disappointed that the party was like, no, you can't publish this book in Russia. And he's like, what do you mean I can't publish this book in Russia? Like, I wrote it for the Russian people and for, you know. I don't know. This movie, at least, talks a lot of shit. <laughs> about Russia? Yeah. Like, well, especially about like about the founding yeah. of the, of the Soviet Union, really, like the founding of the Russian state as it existed at the time. It doesn't go into a lot of detail either way. It feels like it is very much trying to not be political, but instead philosophical. And we've talked about this in in past episodes about generally my feeling on this, but. Yeah, if you have an opinion, just fucking say it is my is my thoughts on things. But I think this film tries to walk that line of being of talking about the philosophical ideas behind how the Russian Revolution escalated and eventually became, you know, what Russia is in the 60s. And it's okay at it. Like, we don't get a lot of the brutality on anyone's side. Like in when we talked Battle of Algiers, like that that film is very clear about, you know, that everybody is doing terrible, awful things. It shows our heroes do bomb innocent civilians, or well, for a given value of innocent anyway. Whereas this hints at it in some ways, and we see, you know, a couple of very negative scenes. But it never really ties that back necessarily to the Russian government. Mm. Or it doesn't do a very good job of doing that. These all seem like very individual actions, like um, with Pasha. Like, Pasha doesn't seem like he's a representative of the government. He seems like, well, this is what the policies of the government have turned him into, and this is how he's interpreted it. And he's gone rogue. Exactly. That's. And don't they. I was having a hard time following. Did they kill him at the end? Oh, yeah. Like, oh, he's yeah. executed? Yeah. That's the only reason they had left Lara alive. Victor tells that story. They yeah. catch him, and on the way to the gulag, he steals a guard's pistol and, quote-unquote, blows his brains out. So he he dies by suicide in the story. But they well, they were going him. to... It wasn't just at the gulag. Like they no, were they were going him to execute to, him. They were okay. taking him to the firing squad, and before they could do it, he shot himself. Right, yeah. right. But that's a good point, Katie. With a few sort of abstract exceptions this film never shows you government officials or high-ranking officials of any countenance i mean yeah you know obviously uh yevgraf is is a general and stromnikov is important but only in within their unit and within their storyline we do get a lot of the iconography 
and we see how that changes. Right. So like mm-hmm. you don't you don't see the czar, you don't see the czar being killed, you don't see any of that stuff. You don't see Lenin, you don't see you know there could have been a lot of like famous figures from the rise of communism and the revolution here and they're not shown with a couple of minor exceptions. One is I think uh Kamarovsky has a picture of Lenin up as in, in his office later once he's like become a Bolshevik because he's like, oh, I better do what's best for me here. Right. And and then, of course, in the final scene of Lara walking down the street, there's a huge mural of Stalin's face. Right. Well, you there. also get Trotsky, I think, too. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of different murals that they use mm-hmm. to illustrate. Right. These are this is who's in power right now. This is the era that we're in during the Russian Revolution. Right. But the film's characters, the film's script is focused on these smaller characters and their plight, et cetera. You're right. You know, and it's it's interesting to me, like early in the film, you do see a lot of the religious iconography, like the the very Eastern Orthodox yeah. kind of stuff. And then that, of course, quickly goes away with the revolution and it is then replaced with the giant murals of Stalin and Lenin and Trotsky and so on and so forth. Right. The, with political of course, figures. Trotsky, Trotsky would later get edited out, but. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, this might be a weird comparison, and I don't know why, but emotionally, the opening of the film with Yuri's mother's funeral gave me a very, like, exorcist vibe when he's at the archaeological (laughs) site digging around it, because it's, like, very detached from the rest of the plot and the rest of the setting, and it just, like, it almost started out and gave me a little bit of a feel of, like, this could be the preamble to, like, a horror story, but it doesn't go that way, obviously. Well, the the other thing I liked about that scene was the, again, the cinematography, how the camera is very, like, it's not strictly a POV shot, mm-hmm. but the camera sees everything from a child's level. Yeah. Mm, I didn't notice that. That's interesting. Yeah, the camera placement. Yeah, it's like really, yeah, the camera placement, it's like you, they show it, they show the coffin and her being carried along, but it's like from below and you just sort of like barely see the outline of her head on the top. It was really interesting camera work there. I appreciated it. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you guys that it doesn't have the sort of more interesting aspects of the Lawrence of Arabia, like sweeping shots and cinematography. But there are still little moments like that that you can grab. I I couldn't help, especially my second time around watching it, I couldn't help but notice there's a scene in, I think they're in the field hospital where Lara is ironing and Zhivago goes to talk with her. And the lighting in that scene is so, it's like, I feel like if it was anybody other than David Lean, you would be like, what is this obvious garbage? Why are you being so unsubtle? I actually did think, what is this obvious garbage? There's, yeah, there's the scenes with um, the, what we generally not think of as the Star Trek lighting, because they were so obvious about it in all of the episodes Mm. where it's just the bar of light across the eyes, which was just something that was very common and popular in film and TV in the 60s. Well, and they have Lara like very well lit, her entire body and her face. Yeah, totally bright, but he's in the shadows. But you can see his eyes kind of twinkle out of that shadow. And I really did feel and looks like Joan Crawford lighting. <laughs> I mean, I, I get it. If it's too unsubtle for someone, I, I can totally understand that. But I did feel like it was the one scene that was maybe judging Yuri a little bit, meaning that it was I felt it was trying to indicate his sort of less than honorable cravings for Lara and and his, 
you know, desire for someone who wasn't his wife and stuff. That that's what I got from the scene while he was looking at her. You know, but maybe that's just my impression. But no, I, I think it would be I think it would be hard to find another interpretation of that. I think you're correct. And then there's a scene where you know he leave she leaves and he's all sad that she's left. And there's the prominent sunflowers and the vase to the left, and they're sort of wilted and they're weeping. And I, I guess that was done. They actually had little thin lines of nylon tied to each pedal and there was someone below pulling the pedals off so that they would like fall laura leave makes sunflowers sad (laughs) (laughs) like fuck that stupid liam obviously didn't like it (laughs) no i didn't i uh, too much liam little 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 too much that's fine he knows how to do not too much but it's the it, it, it's the There's a lot the, of temptation though when you're making that kind of and and like we said this is after Lawrence of Arabia and Bridge on the River Kwai other than a few scenes that he apparently was uncredited for in the greatest story ever told this was his direct follow up to Lawrence of Arabia so this is a guy who has so much money and so much clout and he can just kind of do whatever he wants and and this movie you see a lot of that well I mean. I'm- where do you go after those two films? You know, right, it's like the right. chances of you making something better than that are pretty low. But right, so he's just kind of throwing it at the wall, doing whatever he wants, and going outside the the boundaries of traditional film. I, I there are still little moments that shine through. I think after the intermission, which I don't know what the hell that other French word was, but it goes intermission entract. What the hell is that? Entre- okay, so pretend that at the intermission, you actually went up and you got your popcorn and shit. Uh-huh. The entre act is the music that they play for act two. It's yeah, a, they're it's saying a, it's going to start soon. Sit down. Yeah, okay. you see this. Like, if you ever go to see a musical, well, most kind of classic book musicals, like there's the overture that mm-hmm. they play before the, before it starts. Then you go to intermission. And then when you come back they'll do an entre-act, which is essentially the lead-in to... It's like the overture for Act 2. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So the thing that I really liked coming out of that is we are then on the train going through the Ural Mountains in a tunnel. And you Mm -hmm. can hear all the sound effects of the train and the whistling and the the tracks, etc. But it's all black, so you're like, okay, this could just I thought my TV fucked up for a second. Right. It's pretty long. Yeah. It's like at least a 30 second shot, if not longer. And at first I was like, okay, that's cool. But you could be doing this just with Foley and having a blank screen. It's so dark that there's no indication that it's anything else, except that when the light from the end of the tunnel comes in, it doesn't just fade in from the middle of the screen. It actually comes in from the side and then goes to the center as if they Mm -hmm. were approaching a turn. And I was like, wow, I don't know if they actually filmed this in the dark on the train, but the effect was really cool. And then, of course, the scene opens up and you can see the beautiful mountains. And I wish they'd held that scene a little longer because it's like a half a second. And then it cuts to the train. But I don't know. I, there's something about that that was very David Lean. That no, I that really was liked. very effective. Yeah. Yeah. But I agree. I think for all the places where Lawrence of Arabia won awards for the editing and was is famous case study in film school for film editing in particular. I don't think, I don't know if I, 
I don't know what the awards were that it got, Katie. I didn't look up the Oscars, but I would hope editing wasn't one of them because it definitely was not as good of editing as Lawrence of Arabia, in my opinion. No, it was best adapted screenplay, uh, best cinematography, best art direction, and costumes. Costumes. And score. And score. Yeah. I think it might have been nominated for best directing, though. But yes, it was it was nominated for Best Film Editing, um, Best Sound, Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Supporting Actor for Pasha. Oh, interesting. Okay, thank you. Not who I would have picked. Ralph Richardson? Tom Courtney. Uh, which one's Ralph Richardson? Isn't he in this? He's the dad, I think. I think he's um, yeah. Tanya's oh, dad. Oh, that guy. Yeah. Okay. And now it's time for The Breakdown, where we ask, what was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Liam. Let us hear it. Okay, so the objective of this film is almost entirely unclear to me. (laughs) Now, again, I I say this with all the love in my heart, but this is anti-Soviet propaganda to me. And I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way. Kind of in a bad way, but like propaganda doesn't necessarily have to be something that you inherently disagree with or something that's even inaccurate. But I do feel like it's specifically painting something in a distinct bad light. And that's kind of the case with a lot of these big sweeping epics. Act one is awesome. And act two is a total drag. (laughs) It happens with Lawrence of Arabia kind of happens a little bit with bridge on the river. Kwai happens a lot with Hamilton. You know, where you're just like, oh, well, this isn't as fun as act one. Where's Lafayette? Now he's Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, he's Thomas Jefferson now. But it like gets darker. I didn't necessarily notice that with this so much, except that everything kind of just continues to get worse the more the Bolsheviks get to be in charge. And that very well, I mean, that might be historically accurate. Again, I don't have a, a whole lot of experience with this particular time period, but it makes sense to me why Russia didn't like it, or rather the the Soviet government didn't like it. I think that is, if not a fair response, at least a understandable one, because this movie doesn't like them very much either. But that being said, I don't know that the objective was necessarily to stick a thumb in the eye of the Soviet Union. Maybe that was like a happy byproduct. I feel like maybe David Lean read the book and liked it and wanted to make a movie of it because it seemed like an interesting challenge and sort of married his prior filmmaking styles in an interesting, potentially interesting way. I have no doubt that he felt engaged with the material. Was it on target? If that vague objective was in fact the objective, I kind of feel like it didn't quite hit. This was a movie that I think had a hard time deciding what it wanted to be. And so it never really got there for me. It was too cold and impersonal to be a good love story. And it was too much of a love story to focus on the sweeping epic. So. It's it's weird to make a big sweeping epic about a dude writing poetry, ignoring one woman, but also in a lot of ways kind of not pursuing the other. There's a lot of not much that happens in this 
supposed love triangle. It is the Cold War of love triangles. Like nothing fucking happens for a long time. But in that whole passage of time, also very little tension is built up. It is not the kind of risque and unbridled passion that we see in movies like Atonement, which I fucking didn't like. But I have to say that they did that right. There's a there's enough in this movie that is good technical filmmaking and good acting. There's enough in it that I don't dislike this movie. Okay. That's my approving double negative. <laughs> right. It's it's okay. It's it's rather underwhelming to me, but it doesn't suck. <laughs> Winning praise from Liam for Dr. Zhivago. <laughs> Put that in the bank, David Lean. <laughs> well, I think think they're going to release a whole new Blu-ray edition and put your quote on the cover. It was just that. <laughs> it doesn't suck. <laughs> Is it me? It's Yeah, you. Dan, it's your turn now. Okay. Follow that. Yeah. Yeah, you're always a tough act to follow. Man, I didn't get to this. I may cut this out, but just so you guys know, the scene with the uh, baby where the woman is trying to get on the train and she's using the baby as cover, you know, and then it ends up being a dead baby. I remember you were watching that scene and then it shows you the perspective from the train. You see her face and then Omar Sharif's hand and he's reaching out to her. He's like, come on, come on. And she jumps up and there's that blood curdling scream. And I was like, oh, shit. Did she she just get her legs chopped off? That's exactly what i thought i was like she could have fallen under the train like thank god that didn't happen and then i watched the making of this <laughs> and oh no this, i brought this in all caps oh my god it turns out the mother with the baby did fall under the train so somehow she didn't die or get her legs cut off because i guess she was wearing a lot of clothing and so she got severely injured and had to go to the hospital but she survived that incident and oh Geraldine Chaplin was just commenting about the pacing of the set and how David Lean was a direct as a director. So she said that happened. And all David Lean said was dress the double. And like 10 minutes later, they were filming again. And I was like, oh, my oh God, my David God. Lean, you are fucking intense. Like someone almost just died on your set. Uh, this is why we have doubles, people. Well, again, not having read the book and not knowing everything about what Pasternak thought in the decade that it took him to write this book. It's a little bit hard to say for sure what the objective is simply because I do feel like lean is trying to sort of respect Pasternak as an intellectual and as an artist. And I think the fact that Zhivago is kind of a cipher for Pasternak is not a hidden thing. Like lean really leaned into the hat no pun intended so i think the objective here was to adapt the book through the characters in the book to explore how the revolution affected the humanity of russian citizens through the eyes of an artist in this case a poet who of course you know the author himself was a poet and again knowing what david lean told omar sharif about his depiction it's obvious that that's one thing they were really trying to get across and how to the bolsheviks and to the people who came into power anything personal was for the bourgeoisie nobody wants to read poems about your feelings because it's all about 
the state and the workers and progress and rebuilding the country. You know, we we've destroyed the country down to its foundations and now we're in the process of rebuilding it and none of your personal shit matters at all. I think that's where the line, you know, personal life is dead and history killed it comes from. I can really see what he was going for in that. That whole the artist, the poet seeing the beauty around him in in the countryside and on the train and looking at the moon and trying to write poetry and and all of that and through his looks mostly because again you don't get a lot of the internals that are going on with chicago i think it's supposed to represent something of the innocence of the loss of the russian people going from the czarist i mean going from revolution to revolution and into this newer regime was he on target? This one's kind of 50-50 for me. I would say yes and no. It's always difficult because doing a film for this project makes me do so much research and read into the history that then by the time I come back to the film to talk about it, I'm super invested and I have all this background and I know what's going on both with the history and the making of the film. And I can't really assume that of anyone who sits down to watch this movie who isn't going to necessarily sit and do five or six hours of research or whatever. So. By itself, if you don't know the history of Russia at this time and what preceded this period, some of it's taken a little bit out of context and it doesn't really explain all of that very well. You just hear the whites and the reds and the greens and and fighting's going on and and you know, there are the obvious things like we know that Russia left World War One to then go have a revolution and a civil war, if you know the basics of the history. But the poet angle that he was going for was also kind of 50-50. Again, I, I feel it in some of the dialogue. I feel it in some of the scenes. Whether it was a good idea to tell Omar Sharif to like not emote at all throughout the entire movie is debatable. I don't know. It's not my place to tell him to say whether that was successful or not. It was an interesting try, I think. And a lot of the technical filmmaking also follows that pattern where, yeah, I think David Lean had all the money and the clout to do whatever he wanted and somehow this film still is the what the seventh biggest grossing film of all time eighth. or seventh or eighth it's pretty yep. crazy that's fucking bonkers 375 million tickets folks yeah that's not something i would have guessed about this film so that's pretty crazy i liked it i didn't love it i'll definitely watch it again i think you absorb something different every time for me so far, I've this is my third David Lean, and I think my favorite, no surprise to anyone, I think, is Lawrence of Arabia, followed by Bridge, followed by Zhivago. I don't know anything about A Passage to India, which is early 80s, and I am curious to see that one, but yeah, that's kind of where I'm at on this one. It's really famous. I'm really glad I saw it, and Katie? So the objective of this film... My best interpretation of the objective was that David Lean wanted to make both an epic love story, an examination of a average just man during a rebellion, and the push-pull conflict between the state and humanity, as well as talk about the Russian Revolution in particular. Which is a really complicated objective and maybe not what he should have gone for because it does leave the film feeling very muddled because it's not well balanced, I think. There's a little too much epic love story and time devoted to stunning cinematic shots and not enough to exploring 
how Zhivago feels about the revolution. Because from what I read about the book, that is a much bigger part of the book, is how Zhivago supports the revolution, but then by the end is still disturbed by what the revolution cost Russia. So I think Lean does his best. And he kind of hits the mark, you know, he in like he half and halfs it, you know, he makes it's a good epic love story. It's very tawdry in some ways, which is enjoyable to watch if that's what you're into. It does get into the philosophy of rebellion and does the state command more power than the people or is the state for the people? You know, it, it discusses that a tiny bit. But I think it just was trying to do a little too much, and it stretches that too much out over a little too long. But that's definitely my critical opinion (laughs) of whether or not it's on target. Did I like it? I thought it was interesting. I liked it, I guess. But more, I found it fascinating to watch the production, the acting, what they were saying without saying it, like those all of those scenes between Pasha, well, pretty much any of Pasha's scenes have a lot of political meaning laid into them, but especially the one between Pasha and Zhivago. And I'll probably watch it again. But I also have to say that Klaus Kinski is in this. <laughs> <laughs> and I fucking love Klaus Kinski's crazy, ridiculous nonsense. He, he has a very small role. Um, he plays the not slave on on the train when they're going from Moscow to. He got voluntold to get on the train. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in my notes, he's uh, angry Kurt Cobain on the train. Yeah, which just imagine how how much more angry you have to be to be the angry version of Kurt Cobain. Yeah, there's <laughs> the, the rage. It's a fu- Your body is is suffused with rage at all times, and and that's Kinski. I mean, as a person individually, Klaus Kinski was mad like all the time. And he's (laughs) a super fascinating person. And his performance really stands out in this. And I think it's probably because, Dan, like you said, like Lean wants these very particular performances. Well, with Kinski, you get Kinski. He he doesn't give a shit what you want. He's going to do what he's going to do. There's a great Mm -hmm. documentary uh, that Werner Herzog did because those two work together. That's fascinating. And even though his part is so small, it is a good illustration of, you know, despite being in chains and being forced to work and do really menial work, you know, he insists he's the only free man on this train. And he's one of the few people that we see call out authority and calls, you know, the men in charge, you, know, you bastard, you know, you're a liar. And because he's so brash and out there everybody just kind of ignores him i just love that klaus kinski just makes this random ass appearance in in this classic epic david lean film and like i said i'll watch it again probably not for a few years so i was kind of meh but mostly mostly good and i can definitely see why for some people they fucking love this movie because if you like period love stories this is just bread and butter for you. Absolutely. There are better ones than this. I agree, but I can <laughs> but as someone who does love epic who who loves period romances of high quality at least, this is definitely 
has a lot of great, you know, couples clutching each other in in passionate embrace type scenes, which is what I live for in those moments. What are we doing next? So next up, we have the winner of our audience poll. It is done not necessarily as a personal favor to me, although <laughs> I am appreciative of everybody who voted for it. And our second place pick was Bridge on the River Kwai. But the winner is Patton from 1970 Yay. about George Patton, the general. Yeah, that guy. You want to like say played by or something? <laughs> it was directed Just by. Like so it was directed by Franklin J. Schaffner, starring, of course, the great George C. Scott and Carl Malden. But yeah, because of because of this, the Thin Red Line got knocked down to third place, which means, oh, play the sad, uh, play the sad trombones, and the Price is Right, the Price is Right, you lost music uh, because oh, the Thin man. Red Line. Got knocked down to third place, which means it does not automatically populate into our next audience choice poll. So everybody that wanted to make me watch that stupid fucking movie again, you're going to have to wait for another day, baby. Sorry. It'll come back. I'm sure it eventually will. I can't dodge this thing forever. I know I'm going to have I will die having seen the thin red line twice. And there's there's nothing I can do about that. But today ain't the day. So for anyone who's not familiar with what we're talking about, you can go to our Facebook group at Danger Close Podcast Discussion Group and find every fifth film that we do, we do an audience poll. And we came up with our own internal rule that if a film makes second place, it automatically makes it onto the next poll. If it makes second place three polls in a row, then we will include it automatically into our next set of films. So you'll see the Bridge on the River Kwai in our next poll. So we're going to take a two-week break here and skip our next publishing cycle. So Patton will come out at the end of January, and you won't get a DC episode from us mid-January, but we are going to release one, our first Patreon episode for free to everyone so that you aren't empty-handed on that Friday. And we are going to put out The Terminator, which was our very first episode. If you like it, and you want to listen to more of our sci-fi fantasy and kind of war film-ish stuff that we do, then you can go to dangerclosepod.com forward slash support and join us there. It's only $4 a month, and we've got seven or eight films in the bag, and a new one comes out at the beginning of every month. So thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. Bye! Later, nerds! Somewhere, my love... There will be songs to sing Although the snow Covers the hopes of spring Somewhere a hill Blossoms in green and gold Morning! Get out of here! And there are dreams <sighs> All that your heart can hold I'm Team Tonya, personally. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I'm Team Tonya. Because you respect the sanctity of marriage? No, I think marriage is kind of dumb, actually. <laughs> and I don't encourage anybody to do it. You say this as a married However, man. However, yes, absolutely. I feel like marriage is, societally, we should look at marriage like climbing Mount Everest. <laughs> like, most people aren't going to make it all the way to the top. A lot of people are going to die trying. <laughs>
but it's not like, what do you like? We don't sit around the Thanksgiving table and say, well, when are you going to climb Mount Everest? Like it should be held in that level of like, nobody should be expected to do this. You want to do it? Go ahead. I hope you don't die on the way up. But if you do, we're leaving your body there. So glad Tina doesn't listen to this show. <laughs> no, fuck it. She's heard this before. <laughs> I, I can't imagine. Like, I'm not. <laughs> You're not saying anything Tina doesn't already know about you. Absolutely. Gamlet, Boris Pasternak. Гул затих. Я вышел на подмостки, прислоняясь к верному косяку. Я ловлю в далеком отголоске, что случится на моем веку. The murmurs ebb. Onto the stage I enter. I am trying, standing in the door, to discover in the distant echoes what the coming years may hold in store. На меня оставлен сумрак ночи, тысячу биноклей на оси. Если только можно, а воочи, чашу эту мимо принеси. The nocturnal darkness with a thousand binoculars is focused onto me. Take away this cup, O Abba, Father. Everything is possible to thee. Я люблю твой замысел упрямый и играть согласен эту роль. Но сейчас идет другая драма, и на этот раз меня уволь. I am fond of this thy stubborn project, and to play my part. I am content, but another drama is in progress, and this once, oh, let me be exempt. Но продуман распорядок действий, и не отвратим конец пути. Я один, все тонет в фарисействе. Жизнь прожить, не поле перейти. But the plan of action is determined, and the end irrevocably sealed. I am alone. All round me drowns in falsehood. Life is not a walk across a field. <laughs> <laughs>